Hi, this is uh, Peter Connolly. I'm an occupational therapist and founder of Lifestyle Awareness. This is my conversation with the guys at Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat. Delighted to be here with you today. Coming up on Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat. Self-talk is it's, it's such a key skill because, you know, you think about when we do move towards what matters in life, when we're at the edge of our comfort zone, you know, what shows up? Uh, often it's uh, negative self-talk and it's how we can relate to that in a, in a more flexible way. Yes, great to have you back on board for what is an episode jam-packed with practical tools you can take away from mental skills training, looking at imagery, self-talk, loads of pieces. So do tune in and listen intently to our guest today. We have Peter Connolly on the show. Thanks very much to all of you again for the feedback, for the messages we've been getting over the last few weeks. It really helps us understand what works with the show, what you love to see, what areas you really find interesting, and allows us to give value each and every week when we release this show on a Monday. So thanks very much for that again. If you haven't already, jump on Spotify, jump on Apple Podcasts, give us a rating, hopefully five stars, leave some feedback. We're very grateful every time it's done and interact with us on our channels as much as possible. Thanks very much for all your support. And a quick shout out to another bit of support comes from our sponsor, Hawara, a performance well-being growth partner. Check out the website at hawaralife.com. That's H-A-U-O-R-A life.com. Now let's dive into this excellent episode with Peter Connolly. Welcome to Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat with your hosts, David Clancy and Kieran Dunn. This is a podcast about high performance. What we are striving to achieve is to figure out what makes high-performing individuals tick, why they do what they do, and why they are successful. Enjoy a journey of stories, lessons, and learnings. Today we spoke with Peter Connolly, lifestyle awareness, mental fitness consultant, and occupational therapist. Peter is an OT with a passion for mental and emotional well-being. In mid-2021, he launched Fit Minds, a mental skills and lifestyle design program to enhance mental well-being and performance. The approach blends mindfulness, acceptance and commitment therapy, and OT. His vast clinical experience has written for RT Lifestyle and appears regularly in the media. Today we speak about what Peter has learned from dog walking, movement before meditation, his OT career, and the importance of mindfulness. We unpack where to start for people who find adopting a mindfulness practice difficult and how to become mentally fitter. Peter opens up on self-talk outside our comfort zone, psychological flexibility, mental muscle training, his ambitions for work in sport, and how we can help teach our children the value of meditation and mindfulness. We discuss what energizes Peter's work, his advice for people suffering from anxiety through the pandemic, and the importance of flexibility, imagination, and compassion. There was so much in this. Thanks, Peter. Good morning, Peter. How are you? Uh, you were just telling us off air you've had a lovely morning. Yeah, really, thank you so much for uh, for the opportunity to be on the show. Yeah, I'm uh, just back from a a very cold, wintry uh, kind of walk with the dog and just escaped the rain as well. So I'm feeling that luck is on my side and feeling slightly invigorated as well. I haven't been outside as well today. But yeah, life is going well, you know, full of challenges like it is for most people. But, uh, you know, doing doing my very best to kind of focus on what matters and uh, delighted to be here today. Peter, people say that uh, a dog tells an awful lot about its owner. So the question is, what kind of dog do you have? Well, actually, it's my my brother's dog, my brother and my his his wife. 
kind of dog sitting at the moment. So I didn't choose the dog necessarily, but the dog is teaching me an awful lot and definitely teaching me about that need for, for constant movement uh, through, through the day. And uh, that dog, uh, every morning, I, you know, it, it sleeps in a sort of a little kind of patio and it's so excited by mealtime and walk time that, you know, it sort of is a wake up call for me to appreciate the small things in life as well. Peter, we had Stephen Kotler on the show recently, and he was speaking about the similarities and the comparisons we can draw from dogs and humans, and one of them being the empathy piece. For this dog, what lessons has it taught you? What's the one big lesson that you've learned over the last while spending time with it? I, I think it would definitely be uh, presence. You know, uh, I think that's uh, that dog is very present about uh, the things that it particularly wants. And <laughs> it wants walks and food and it, it defends its turf as well. So I think there's a few things in there. And Peter, I mean, the two of us here, you know, with Hawara, we would do an awful lot of work in well-being. And so mental well-being, mental health, mental fitness is, is a huge part of that work. And especially now more than ever. We really wanted to talk to you because obviously with lifestyle awareness and, and fit minds and, and mental fitness, the concept you kind of talk about, why did you get into that? How was that the the story that you wanted to share with people? Well, I'd say it was a gradual journey. You know, I I I, I started off, you know, probably quite quite young really in terms of my interest in the mind and human potential in particular around people's stories and unlocking potential. I remember being a teenager and wanting to be a professional snooker player <laughs> and uh, for, you know, following that dream for, for a little while. It didn't materialize for me, but I was, it certainly got me very interested in, in what gets in the way of talent, in, in, in people being able to stay disciplined and unlock their potential and overcome disappointment. That was a real lesson for me, you know, seeing people all, all around the country and even all around the world where you know that that journey that they that they were on, being able to handle the knocks and the disappointment that comes from following your dreams, um, and so it doesn't necessarily destroy you, but maybe it, it, it grow it helps grow and, and and foster something else, even if you don't necessarily get there. It's how do you stay well, sort of in the process? So that that you know propelled me on to. You know, an interest in in psychology and and health. Uh, I, I worked um, in the voluntary sector for many years in the homeless field in London, and then I moved into uh, you know thinking about you know what what is what's the stuff that I'm really interested in. Um, you know, do I want to become a psychologist? Do I want to become a social worker? That kind of thing. And I actually looked at occupational therapy because we were involved in a lot of practical projects that were involved in supporting people to occupy their time in a more meaningful way you know people who you know life had played them some tough cards and maybe you know they'd ended up in in a in a position of homelessness and through various activities and projects finding meaning and through doing really and finding themselves and having structure and learning skills in terms of whether that was playing football being on a farm music projects that kind of thing and it, the, the 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 most uh, well, the, the profession most aligned to that was occupational therapy. And, I, you know, it started me down that particular path in terms of qualifying as an occupational therapist. And then and then perhaps, you know, getting to a stage in my career where I needed to do my own work, not just about what I was interested in, but what was going to sustain me to do that work longer term. You know, I think we we can we can do our jobs, but how we can be in those jobs, particularly where we're, you know, 
seeing people, whether it's in, whether it's working with people who are really struggling, or there's a lot of um, stress or chaos or demand in the environment. I think that's something that maybe falls short of a lot of professional type training. So I hope that sort of gives some context of where I've maybe come from. So being an OT over 18 years obviously had its moment where you felt more aligned with the occupation and you kept at it for such a long period. What was it that you got energy from each and every day being that occupational therapist? Well, I'd say that occupational therapy is probably one of the most diverse professions within healthcare. Mm-hmm. It does offer tremendous opportunities to to grow and to try a different thing. So I always felt I was always learning. I was always growing. And because it has this sort of creative element too, particularly in mental health, I was be able to sort of blend, you know, learning particular, you know, activities or trainings. For, so, for example, I, I got involved in personal training and ran a gym and did my mindfulness teacher training. So I was able to blend, blend a lot of physical stuff and learn about fitness. Also, you know, it started me on that path around sort of more mental fitness and being able to sort of begin to look at sort of skills training to support people in, in the recovery. So I would say that as a profession, it, it provided lots of opportunities uh, as it does for many people. And it's making those choices and perhaps clarifying then what is it that, you know, you're more aligned with in terms of your values and vision for in, in terms of the profession and what you can bring to the table and, and being able to pursue that pro- quite proactively. So I think that I, I've definitely worked in environments where I was certainly given that autonomy and support to to do that. I can't speak for everybody, but certainly that was my experience. And just digging into mindfulness, of course, if we look at the literature and science out there, there's a lot saying that it's it's great for us, it's really good for us, but there's still skepticism. And it it seems to be hard for people to do, for it to become a habit and part of the ritual, Peter. I I for one still find it really, really difficult to to do it each and every day. For those of us struggling how can we train this skill? How can we onboard mindfulness, explore it a little bit more and make it part of our ritual? Well, I think there are many different doors uh, in terms of how do, how, do we, how do we choose the right door in terms of you know, our training. I think you know, I would certainly work with a lot of people who struggle with mindfulness, struggle with the sitting aspect and being still. And perhaps that's not always the, the best place. Sometimes it's best to to, to, to try with a more moon, uh, movement-based practice. But I think fundamentally, mindfulness and acceptance-based approaches really are, you know, the foundational kind of pillar really to, to train the mind. Um, that's not going to be easy. It's something that we need to kind of build up gradually. I mean, the science is there to support it in terms of developing awareness, To in terms of improving our ability to uh, reduce mind wandering and stress reduction. But of course it is, it is difficult because you're going to meet your busy mind. And that is the point. It's about getting to know your mind. And when we get to know our minds, we, 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 we notice that it's busy and we might have an expectation, you know, because of a want to feel more relaxed that, you know, if I'm not feeling relaxed and I'm doing it incorrectly, where actually you're on the path. I mean, that is the path of meaning a busy, busy mind. And often what people might struggle with is, is sort of escaping from a particular feeling um, and feeling that, you know, that this feels unpleasant um, uh, or, a, or a sort of resistance to the experience itself. And it's gradually sort of implementing that into it, you know, where I maybe start with with clients is that I maybe start with a counting based practice. 
So, you know, building concentration. So that could be something like a 7-11, breathing in for 7, breathing out for 11. So the, the choice of doing the practice is one thing, but the skill really is learning to return your attention from the count because your mind is going to wander. But other clients, it might start with movement. So maybe move before we meditate. You know, throughout history, that's how people did it. People did yoga, then they did uh, meditation. In our Western culture, we just seem to think that we can circumnavigate that. We can just start with meditation. So sometimes movement first, count. So move, count, and then maybe more of an open awareness. That's where I maybe start and maybe also much shorter practices. So we look at something like the MBSR, you know, it's a gold standard evidence-based, but it's 45 minutes. That's like jump. That's like skydiving, you know, from a meditation perspective. It's pretty intense. What about a minute? What about 90 seconds? What about reps? What about mental reps, which could be, say, 10, 7, 11s, you know, where people build up some confidence that they can do this and begin to live, you know, have some lived experience that actually I can do this. You know, I can pepper it in through my day. And then the challenge then becomes is how do I break automatic pilot and remember to do it? That's where a lot of my clients are at at the moment and we're, you know, finding ways to, actually, this is something you can do throughout the day. You don't need to close your eyes. You don't need to go into a quiet room. You can be training your mind uh, throughout the day. Just have some little pauses or break automatic pilot, eyes open. There's lots of possibilities, particularly when we move away from standardized uh, protocols or programs, you know, and develop more flexible hybrid ways of bringing this into sort of a mainstream everyday type population, if that makes sense. That's interesting. We haven't really heard much about the movement before the practice piece from experts in the field. So we're sitting here in an office in Marion and we've office blocks all around us. We have people at desks. Is it enough for someone or would it be effective enough if someone got up and walked around the city they find themselves in, regardless of nature or anything, and then come back to their desk and practice for one to two minutes? Will that be beneficial for them in terms of meditation? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you start with whatever works for you. So that could be tuning into your senses as you're walking around, slowing down your breathing when you're doing it, just being more purposeful and um, conscious of what you're doing. So feeling your feet, noticing your breath, slowing it down if you can, slow deep breaths and uh, noticing your senses and tuning in. So when we tune into our senses, when we tune into something like even the connection with our feet in the ground, we are becoming more present in that moment. You know, we are breaking out of just being in our heads. I mean, a little trick that I do with clients is that, you know, I do a lot of movement, you know. So we think about movement and we think about the powerhouse of regulation, which would be through proprioception of vestibular. So as physios, you probably are well aware of those terms, but for everyone else, it's proprioception is movements that, you know, impact our uh, awareness of body and space, but, you know, through our receptors in our, in our muscles and tendons and vestibular system through the inner ear. So vestibular, you, you could be on a standing on a balance board for like a minute and just that ability to, you know, to bring your attention to your feet. But the effect of that balance is activating the cerebellum, which is a powerhouse for, for regulation as well. So it's a quicker way in maybe. So I've a lot of clients would say the ADHD and various neurodivergent sort of type labels, and they might struggle with, with sitting. So we, we, we start with something like a balance board. It's becoming very popular in, in, in a lot of 
office places around around the country. The fact you know the the effect of balance can have on being able to self regulate, but also being able to refocus our attention and and make us more sort of. Um, you know, kind of refuel our focus, really. So I think there are lots of different things you can do, particularly if you don't have a lot of time. Uh, and and just being able to know the the role that movement can have for refueling cognition. And then perhaps then use a count or do some slow, deep breathing or mindfulness practice, you know, where it's being able to pepper some of these things into your day in a way where you don't feel overwhelmed, you get some quick wins and you feel, yeah, I can do this, I'm on this path, you know. Yeah, we love practical interventions and, and the tactics piece. Sometimes we make, we kind of miss that when just talking theory. And I'm here looking over at Kiran, standing up on one foot, testing the balance, Doing testing, well. testing the proprioception. Absolutely. And look, Peter, just, just digging into fit minds a little bit and whether they're values or, or principles, kind of guiding principles as it were. But uh, you've got flexibility, imagination, and compassion, three really big words. What are the origins behind those words? Sure. So, so if we think, give, give you some context. So, if we think about you know having worked in places like John of God's and Patrick's Maudsley over a number of years, began to see really the value the value of, of therapy and you know getting that psychological support. But a lot of those therapies and skills people were getting in in when they were in crisis, and it was about getting them well again. They're all evidence based, and thinking about okay. You know that's that's great, but you know some of these skills can be taught at a much earlier stage. So if we look at what some of those skills are, if we think about flexibility, what that means, it's psychological flexibility. So that comes from um, an intervention or a, a skill set from acceptance commitment therapy or acceptance commitment training. So what that looks like is being able to sort of accept and make contact with difficult thoughts and feelings that might show up, particularly in moments of challenge, but being able to stay connected to what matters and connected to the present moment and to move towards that. So it's not that I can only do these things when I feel like it, or I can only do these things when I'm not feeling anxious, that I choose my values over my kind of mental content that I have. So that comes from developing the, the particular skills around that so flexibility or psychological flexibility is one of the pillars of the fit minds program which is a mental fitness program and it's also a key determinant of mental health it's also a key determinant of being successful in performing in any space so things like acceptance commitment therapy or acceptance commitment training and mindful space approaches are slowly creeping into the high performance space and becoming quite a dominant set of tools in that space in, in, in traditional elite environments. But it's also the skills that we teach people to, to, to get back on their feet. You know, it's, they're not necessarily therapy uh, in the traditional sense, there's, there's skill sets. It's like, well, surely uh, that then lends itself to group-based work or, you know, being able to train people much earlier, for example, in schools, in, you know, more sort of um, kind of upstream type interventions to, to sort of move towards kind of prevention and keeping people well. Imagery then, so imagery, I mean, this was the, the mystery for me. I began to kind of really kind of look at the power of our, you know, our imagination, our ability to formulate pictures and, and, and um, ideas and thoughts in our, in our head ahead of time seeing that the link there because we we do play that what if game and we 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 imagine scenarios going badly 
But we can also imagine things going well and being able to plan how we overcome obstacles. And, you know, I was lucky enough to come across uh, a team in the University of Plymouth who do, uh, they have a methodology called functional imagery training, which blends uh, motivational interviewing with imagery and being able to use imagery in a multi-sensory point of view. So, you know, you'd be traditionally going over the the, 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 the talking, uh, you know, type intervention, but then you go back over it with imagery. And what imagery is doing really is sort of activating that desire uh, for change. So it's more emotive than just sheer um, kind of verbal processing or talking or reading or even writing down. So it's uh, imagery is already at the, at the cornerstone of both desire and craving. So it's quite uh, it's a key building block in behavioral change, not just um, or to support people through behavioral change. And, you know, I think there are a lot of people out there who are doing either visualization or something similar, but, you know, have they have they brought that into the lab? Have they evidenced, you know, have they brought it into kind of research to that sort of level and blended it with a traditional talking-based intervention? So that's where that that last piece was, was, was around imagery. And then compassion, obviously, that's compassion-focused therapy or mindfulness, self-compassion practices, where you're you're bringing those practices alive that people can 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 use to you know as an antidote to support them with having more credible and compassionate self-talk um, and being able to sort of overcome or be able to manage things like like doubt or shame or blame or criticism that might show up in moments of difficulty or, or defeat even just so being able to provide this as a sort of a a framework having looked at what would be the key mental skills that we would, you know, what I, I personally would have loved to learn, but but having spoke to, you know, therapists and um, coaches around the world, what are, what are the key mental skills that you would like to see? And that could be go across different diagnoses, but also in the, the therapy world, but also the high performance space and what have a good evidence base behind them. So that's where we stuck with those kind of three pillars as a starting point. So we find ourselves coming out of this pandemic, hopefully, but there's still uncertainty. There's a lot of issues around what kind of obligation people will have, whether to go to offices or stay at home, what will hybrid work look like? So there's still that uncertainty remains. It just has a different lens at the moment. What kind of advice would you give the people facing into this a new kind of angst, a new kind of anxiety to overcome it and to maybe bring their best self forward going into going into 22 and beyond? Well, I mean, firstly, it's it's a very normal experience. It's that that anxiety is is very real. It's a very normal emotion to be experienced uh, in our, in our current times. It also is giving us important information. You know, this is important. It's obviously, uh, you know, we we hurt where we care and we care where we hurt. You know, this is stuff that matters, and people have genuine concerns. And it depends on your your own context, your own situation with with family and stuff. I think being very connected to our values, I think helps us our values and our vision and, you know, what gives us fatality. You could call it a triple, triple V, you know, and being able to bring that alive every day. So how do we, how do we flavor and savor our values in our daily actions? I think that's a, that's a key point. How do I move into this uncertain um, day, uncertain week with my values in hand? If I get to choose, um, how can I how can I act in a way with, with kindness to myself or others 
or a value of you know being more um being more compassionate being more flexible that's the key thing so the skills then support us move towards those values so we have to have a kind of a sense of, of that first and then we might use our values or sort of our skills training to keep us steady you know whether that's things like the 7-eleven you know, i've got clients where that's the only practice they're doing through the day and and but they're doing it quite a bit they're doing quite a few reps every every hour and that's really helping them dampen in that um, you know that physiological uh, stress arousal sort of response and maintaining that clarity and reducing that stimulus you know that that that's or increasing that space between their own sort of something happening and them reacting being able to respond more um, skillfully I think being very tuned into what's keeping you keeping you well and being able to return to work or return wherever you're returning to, in a way where you're still maintaining that sort of wellness plan, if you like, whether that's going out for your walks, your workouts, breaking things up, I think that's key. Being quite real and being able to name, yeah, this is this is difficult for me, and being able to to name that, and also in, in one of the skills is obviously trying to name things um, and be with them without that sort of evaluation. Uh, of course, that's um, that's all, these are all things that are skills that we can practice and, and, and grow, uh, grow stronger. It's very difficult to then to master something like this just from a podcast, but so, something that you know I'm trying to support people at the moment is develop their own sort of mental fitness challenge of being able to try a different skill a week and being able to Im- implement that into their, into, their, um, into their day. So if anyone's interested in that, please feel free to get in touch. But I would say there would, would be starting points, a connection with values, how do I want to be in the world more often? What's keeping me well? And then maybe using the, the mental skills as a way of steadying ourselves to move towards those. In discussing the mental muscles and imagination, compassion, obviously we've we've talked through those a little bit. But gratitude, obviously, you know, gratitude's so important. Projecting it onto others and and feeling it at first. I was really good, kind of fills up our bucket, as it were. But what's the goalkeeper all about? Two of us here were chatting about that one before we were speaking, and what is the goalkeeper? So the goalkeeper is essentially a metaphor. It's a metaphor for being a guardian of our own mind, but to, but also our brain. You know, it's our one thing that's particularly important in in, in in the work that I do is around things like executive functioning. You know, that's our the brain skills that we use in terms of doing things that we need to protect our mental energy. But if you think about what a goalkeeper needs to do, a goalkeeper needs to observe, but also at times needs to take action and needs to make contact with what is, you know, what is difficult, but also being able to protect what is important, you know, protect our time, protect our attention, protect our resources, protect that boundary. And you could, you could call it a state of mind. uh, You could call it a mental muscle, but, you know, throughout history, we've, there's always been a, a metaphor for our ability to protect, defend our minds, you know, both against um, external influences, but also internal distractions. And we know, particularly now in the attention economy, in the attention, you know, people are, um, you know, our attention is, uh, you know, is, is a very um, highly rated and, uh, you know, people want our attention. 
and we need to be able to protect it in in practical terms, both in terms of skills, but obviously bringing up some some defenses. Yeah, that's great. We actually work with an excellent performance psychologist, Dr. Rachel Sheen, and a mental skill she speaks of is self-talk, that inner chatter, that inside dialogue that goes on consistently in our brain. How important is that in your world? How much do you implement it in the Fit Minds program? Yeah, I mean, it's really crucial. Self-talk is it's such a key skill because, you know, you think about when we do move towards what matters in life, when we're at the edge of our comfort zone, you know, what shows up? Uh, often it's uh, negative self-talk and it's how we can relate to that in a, in a more flexible way. So, for example, in Fit Minds, we use a process that we call the DNAV. So it's the, the discoverer, the noticer, and the advisor. So if we think about the advisor, again, as a metaphor for our, our ability to give ourselves advice, to talk to ourselves, to make predictions, to make evaluations. That's, you know, it's part of our evolutionary software. And that content, you know, can at times sound like a, a critic and at times sound like a coach. So being more flexible is that we want to move away from having a monologue really with our critic and be able to have more of a, a dialogue. And we need to create distance from that to be able to diffuse and be able to sort of move into discovering because what the advisor, the advisor is all about following rules, avoiding making mistakes, uh, keeping ourselves safe, where in life we have to take chances and we have to learn by experience, not by just making predictions or intellectualizing what we think is going to happen. So being able to, being able to be at times being more flexible and at times also being able to ground and notice what's happening in our body, in our internal world, so that noticer. So that, that ability to flexibly move from advisor to discoverer to noticer, or, you know, in each, in each of those, um, those processes. And we do that in, in connection with and moving towards our values. You know, what's important, what energizes us, what, you know, who, who do we want to be in this moment? So that's where that, that skill is required because obviously it's showing up in, in difficult um, moments and it's how we can sort of bring that alive more. So, yeah, hope that makes sense. As you know, it's quite a challenge to maybe summarize in a couple of minutes, but you know, so sometimes this can take a little bit longer to land. But it's certainly developed by the work of uh, Louise Hayes and our team in Australia uh, and a good evidence base behind it and is um, one of the ways that we're bringing acts into working with younger people at the moment. And for a man who's given an awful lot, I mean, profession as an OT, of course, but, you know, the true athlete project and Clowns Without Borders, there's a lot of work you've done that really does involve giving and serving. And I suppose just speaking and picking up on the Energizers piece we were just talking about, you know, helping and mentoring and, and shining light on, on difficult, difficult circumstances. What's energizing you now moving forward and, and sparking your curiosity even? Well, I mean, I think what's speaking my, you know, what's sparking me at the moment is certainly, you know, it's developing and learning, but it's also connection. You know, it's connection with, with friends, relationships. Um, it's the opportunities that exist and opening up again and, and you know, seeing, uh, seeing people who are dear and true and, and mean a lot to me, um, new friendships and relationships that have been forged uh, through this, the last couple of years. And certainly um, in terms of um, my own, uh, there's a lot of projects around, particularly around movement, uh, that I'm hoping to uh, 
you know, that were popped during the, the last couple of years and seeing, seeing where they're at at the moment. Uh, I think for me, that's, you know, I'm, I'm very much a, a product of the product. I need this as much as anybody uh, to keep, to keep me well. And so that I don't, I don't burn out or, uh, you know, just find myself overworking that, you know, this is about making life bigger and moving towards what, what matters and being connected to that in a meaningful way. I'm also hoping to, you know, kind of move more into sports, move more into education um, and sort of unlocking those doors and that, that, that new, new type of uh, work as well. So yeah, they would be the they would be the things that are very much with me at the moment. But there's also things that are that are tough. There's 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 people in our family that are that are that are struggling at the moment, and that's very real and very uh, you know what's happening right now, you know, and it's being making space for that, but also the fact that you know um, not trying to. Um, you know, avoid that in any way that that is part of what's going on as it is for many many people that we're holding a lot of difficult things um, but can we still move, still connect into what sustains us more often through the day even if we don't have a lot of time you know can we do that in whatever time that we have being able to reclaim that in some way and then looking into sports and sports performance organizations and athletes there's a lot of work in psychology in that area what kind of areas are you looking to harness and maybe bear fruit with in terms of improving performance and improving the well-being of athletes and people in them organizations? Yeah, well, I mean, I think I think around this, particularly around the mental fitness uh, area, there are there are conversations that are active at the moment. I mean, there's there's generally a lot of stakeholders in this space anyway, and uh, there are there are some gaps. There, there are some you know. Uh, things that are are, are are being done really well, uh, but I would say that there's a lot of scope for particularly unlocking and making things more practical, particularly around you know whether we can bring more mindfulness and acceptance based approaches into that space. That people aren't going to lose their edge by doing this; they're going to become maybe better at what they're doing in key moments and being able to. I suppose become more all-rounders and be able to support them with the, the the demands and the difficulties and the lifestyle and the temptations that may they may arise within that, but also the the kind of disappointments. I think um, sport itself, you know, there is scope for for being a better role model in some respects. You know, in terms of its uh, potential role for supporting communities and inspiring communities whether that's young men or women and you know having a more um, a kind of a mindfulness and acceptance based kind of philosophy within that space as well i think there's a lot of good work i think you mentioned the true athlete project there would be certainly a, an organization that i uh, tried to support in some way um throughout the last couple of years as well because that that's at the very heart of their kind of philosophy of how we can bring those sort of principles into sport and be able and with sport can can uh, you know be that inspiration for many people as as it as it is uh, but you know it, there's certainly potential for 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 more also and speaking to, about the younger generation you know i'm a dad and have some children there and you know we spoke to graham betchart before in this podcast about language about how maybe normalizing meditation mindfulness kind of breathwork even kind of destigmatizes it and and nearly removes the the anxiety behind it but 
how can we help kids maybe onboard this and, and let it be a little bit more normal for them as a behavioral piece? Because we all pick this up a little bit later and when we're older, but imagine if the younger generation were starting to understand these these mental fitness skills at a, at a younger age so that they can take on social media and, and other challenges that come their way. Yeah, and I mean, I I would even move away from being stronger. I would move. I would. I would. I would use language even like flexible or strong, maybe. You know. uh, but uh, yeah, we got to make it more relatable. We got to make it. Um, you know, we got to make it fun and um, more. You know, what we might call gamification or metaphors that they can relate to. So there are, for example, if we think about the mindfulness world. You know, they've got dot B, they've got the pause programs, for example, that 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 they are age appropriate and they've got nice, cool little sort of, um, you know, analogies like, you know, like training a puppy, for example, as opposed to, you know, uh, training your attention, you know, and they use, you know, different metaphors, maybe from animals or superheroes. Uh, a number of people have brought in, uh, you know, analogies from superheroes and a superhero might, you know, have their own kind of kryptonite or their own struggle, but that is often the source of their strength. So being able to reframe difficulties or diversity, if they're feeling different from their peers, that they may also have hidden talents that we need to, you know, use different kind of language to, to connect with. And that takes a little bit of work. Some people are better at it than others, of course, uh, but there, there is some good work out there and it's, it's looking at those sort of programs and stuff. Uh, I think definitely Reese Hayes, DNAV is uh, fantastic and it's doing great work over in Australia and how that that's, that's you know, we see that as a mental skills program through schools and how that's been done. But I think movement as well, maybe starting off with movement as a way of regulating. Um, and, you know, if we think about um, saying like from an OT perspective, you know, we would be using um, movement and play and activities as a way of providing those sort of skills, being able to to use skills that you know whether it's whether it's drawing or whether it's being in a balance board or whether it's being on a trampoline or those kind of very rich sensory activities can lend themselves to being more you know really powerful for self regulation and very powerful for being able to refocus. You know, kids are very much more into movement and play than adults. So I think it, it does lend itself to just being able to use those kind of uh, things that are kids naturally engage in anyway, um, making it more fun and playful. And I think if mommy or daddy does it as well, it's a nice kind of bonding thing. It can be quite fun to, you know, even just to um, do some of the practices, you know, whether it's choir practices or well, we're just going to do one thing at a time. We're going to, you know, park our phones away. You know, we're kind of modeling and learning. It's a nice way of bonding, but also that, you know, it can be challenging. But kids love seeing their parents do this stuff as well, I think. They love, they just love spending time with us, really, you know, and we can do that in a, a creative way where actually they don't realize it, but they're building skills at the same time. Thanks, Peter. We've certainly enjoyed spending time with you today. One last question. And it's the question we ask everyone who comes on the show. It's what does high performance mean to you, Peter Connolly? I think for me, it's really, you know, it's an alignment between the person, the occupation and the environment. Um, I think that's really where high performance inter inter intersects. 
I mean, we can look at the individual. Individuals can definitely build skills and become better at things. But I think for that ultimate high performance, we've got to have that sweet spot between those three things. And Peter, just thanks very much for your time today. I mean, we really, really enjoyed it. And just talking about connection, we're, we're looking forward to having you up here and, and going out for some lunch here in Dublin together. That'd be, that'd be lovely. And really wishing you all the best. Um, stay, stay well, stay healthy. And yeah, thanks again for your time today. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat, a story of high performance. This was brought to you by Howora, a whole person wellbeing company founded and run from Dublin, Ireland. Find out more at howoralife.com, spelt H-A-U-O-R-A life.com. Please rate, review and share the podcast. Some people want it to happen. Some wish it would happen. Others make it happen. The GOAT, Michael Jordan.